0: The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Okay, I want to get into the Word this morning. I mentioned I wanted to kick off a series. Now, it's, it's not always uh, uh, inspired by a current event, but we had a really great time at the men's group yesterday. We were talking about peace, and Marcus brought the word there's really great. It opened up some discussion. And as I was thinking about it later on, I was thinking, you know, there's something about the, the, the discussion there that continued to stir in me. You know, the, the, to, to put it in a nutshell, and it's not a, a complete nutshell, I mean, Marcus brought a very thorough and full word, but the, the concept was you know, God providing peace as we make decisions and choices and having that peace versus not having that peace. And, and it, it came to, to my attention as I was pondering that and thinking about that, you know, God's really done some incredible things on our behalf to help lead us and guide us. And um, peace is one of those things fact, we're going to talk about peace, but not today. But the point is, is that we, we need direction. We need to to have understanding and counsel. I mean, we need a a roadmap. We need to to know which way to go and and when to go that way. I mean, we need counsel and direction and things. I want to look at some scripture today, and I want to kick off a series. uh, I want to just title it. I don't normally title things, but Wisdom from Above. Wisdom from Above. I want to give you a few things we're going to find in today's message, and then we're going to get into the Word, and we'll spread it out over the, the next week's. The one we're going to find, first of all, how to get wisdom. I mean, we may acknowledge that every week because that's really the, the point. We want direction. We want counsel. We want to know what to do. We want to know when to do it. How to get wisdom. A second thing that we're going to find is how to get purity. Now, you heard when we prayed over the children just a moment ago that we imparted purity. I want to find some scriptural direction on living a pure life. A third thing that we're going to Uh, to find is how to see God active in your life. How to see God. So I want to get into the scripture here. We'll jump right in how to get wisdom. This will be the foundational verse for the weeks to come. So get get ready to hear this verse. Get ready to maybe, you know, that little bookmark they put in your Bible. Well, you might use that because we're going to open this one up uh, every week. So the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5. The book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, that's what we're going to open up to. That'll be our foundational verse, how to get wisdom. So the book of James, in chapter 1, verse 5, it opens up with something that's very encouraging to me. I mean, James is writing this, and you've got to understand, when these books are being written, first of all, they're not being written necessarily as books, they're being written as letters, and they're being written as letters to people. And these are people who are believers. So when you read about these things, you have to understand that this is encouragement, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's directed to Christians. So as we read this, we can understand that it's Spirit-inspired encouragement directed at me, directed at you as a Christian. And James is writing this now, and we're James chapter 1, verse 5, and he opens up and says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, well, I've been in that camp a few times. I mean, if any of you doesn't know what to do, you're at a crossroads, you're facing a choice or a decision, you need to know which way to go. You need to know what to do. You need to know what to say. You need to know how to handle something. If you fall in this camp, do the following. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all. Can you just say all? See, that's important to me. I mean, those are the kinds of words that I underline in my Bible or I circle or highlight. Because this means there's never a reason why I should ever feel excluded from this. God has made this available to every single believer. He's not just made it available to pastors. He's not just made it available to traveling ministers. He's not just made it available to people who've been a Christian a really, really, really long time. He's made it available to everyone. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. That's me. That's you. When we ask him, he gives it to us. Now, I want to find out what it is that he's giving to us. I mean, if I lack wisdom and I'm asking God for it, how do I know when it comes? If I'm asking God for wisdom, Father, I need direction in this situation. I need help. I really don't know how to do it. It seems like every time I try to fix this, I make it worse. It seems like every time I step out and do that, it blows up in my face. I want your wisdom in this situation. Well, we can get that out of that passage in James, that we can take that problem to to God. We can ask God for the help and that he he promises to provide it. But what's going to be helpful for me and what would be helpful for all of us is to know what that looks like when it comes. I mean, what does his direction look like when it comes? What does his wisdom look like when it comes? I don't want to miss it. I'm committed to asking him. I can take that passage of scripture and it can change my life. When I don't know what to do, I should ask God because he gives to all generously. But now how am I going to know when he's given it to me? I mean, what do I have that I can work with as a standard to know that that's from God and it's not just my mind wondering, it's not just a feeling or a sensation, or it's not just the counsel of my neighbor or the world, but I'm hearing God clearly on the matter. I want to turn to a passage of scripture there that's further into James to set a standard that we can measure God's wisdom by. A description that we can put it up against in order for us to know when he's brought his counsel into our lives. The book of James chapter 3 verse 17. James chapter 3 verse 17. Remember James said earlier, if anyone lacks wisdom, let that person ask God. He gives generously without reproach. And it'll be given to the person. So now for us to know what that wisdom is when it comes so that we don't miss it, so that we can acknowledge it and recognize it when it comes our way, let's look at James chapter 3, verse 17. It starts with these words, The wisdom from above is. You see that? I mean, like as I'm reading my Bible, those, that's kind of one of those places that I underline. The wisdom from above is. Now I know everything that follows that statement is going to be describing the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is. I mean, if I were writing that, I would probably put like a colon there and, and then just list the things after it. Because here we're going to see a description of God's direction, God's counsel, God's wisdom. When we don't have it, we go to Him and we ask for it. When it comes our way, it's going to look like this. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. That's a list that describes God's wisdom entering into our life. That's a list of the things that, that paint the picture of, that offer the description of God's direction and His counsel. And it's not that it's one of those things, but it's all of those things. If we have a direction that we believe is of the Lord, we ought to be able to lay that direction down and then check off one of, every single one of these boxes. Is that pure? Check. Yes. Is it peaceable? Check. Yes. Is it gentle? Check. Yes. And if you're me, you better do that one twice. Is it gentle? Check. Yes. Is it reasonable? Check. Yes. Is it full of mercy and good fruits? Check. Yes. Is it unwavering? Check. Yes. Is it without hypocrisy? Check. Yes. And if you can check off all of those boxes, you're going to be working with wisdom from above. Now, I want to talk about wisdom from above, and I want to talk about that first description, pure, that it's pure. And if you're like me, you, you think about words, and you, you realize there's words that you use more than others, and so you often like to, to substitute words where things make more sense to you. I really don't use the word pure often when I'm teaching or preaching, but I use the word holy a lot. They're one and the same. Holiness is purity. Purity is Holiness. Pure means without any corruption. Holiness means without any corruption. So let's just use the word holy there. Wisdom from above is first holy. Now there's a reason for this. I mean, God's word is always going to be pure. It's going to be without corruption. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be holy because God is his word and God is holy. So anytime his direction or his counsel is going to enter into my life, it must first be pure. It's always going to be pure. If it does not pass the purity test, if you cannot check off that box, it ain't God. And it's crazy the things that you'll hear people say when you're functioning pastorally. You know, people can come into your office and say, well, God's calling me to leave my wife. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. Let's see if we can check off the boxes here. Is that holy? Is that pure? No, it's not. So let's revisit this. You know, and you try not to be sarcastic, and you don't want to be ugly, and you sure don't want to beat anyone down. You want to help build them up. But I'm just telling you, this is something that's really cool. I mean, God's given us the checklist for heavenly counsel and wisdom to protect us from being led by all kinds of dark, evil, and carnal things, especially ourselves, but to be led by His Spirit. Wisdom from above is always pure. I want to give you a few passages of Scripture for your notes there. Psalm 12, verse 6. Psalm 12, verse 6. The word of the Lord is pure. As silver tried in the furnace of the earth, refined seven times. I remember that as a Scripture song. Do you remember that? You ever seen that? Word of the Lord is pure word, pure word. Yeah, we always sang a song when I was a kid. And it happened in a home fellowship. That's why I'm excited to get back in homes. The word of the Lord is pure. It's always going to be pure. I want to give you another passage of Scripture. Psalm 19, verse 8. Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and it enlightens the eyes. That's a song you remember, a Scripture song? I tell you what, that's awesome. But purity is always going to be the priority of what God is doing. I mean, I'm going to say that again because I think that's a big deal. Purity is always going to be the priority of what God is doing. When God's doing anything in my life, He's purifying me. He's making me more like Jesus. He's getting junk that doesn't need to be there out and putting wonderful things that need to be there in. He's in the process of purifying my soul. He's doing the same for every Christian. Purity will always be at the priority of what God is doing. It will always be the priority, excuse me, of what God is doing for a couple of reasons. One, because God is holy. I'm going to give you a few passages of Scripture. We'll, We'll move rather quickly through these. Isaiah 57, verse 15. God is the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. It's who he is. As he's making us more like him, he's going to be making us in His image, after His likeness, introducing purity and holiness into every aspect of our living. It's what He's accomplished through the blood of Jesus in our spirit, and it's what He's accomplishing by the Holy Ghost in our soul, with the renewal of our mind. The things that used to not bother me now bother me. There are things that I used to do, and I never thought twice about it, but today I have a conviction, because God has brought purity into my mind concerning those things. Psalm 77 verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. Your way, meaning the things you do, the motives behind the things you do, your way is holy. Not sometimes, not a little bit, but 100% all the time, your way is holy. And then I want to give you this as a passage of scripture for your notes. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, you see a scene of heavenly worship. Scene of heavenly worship, meaning this is a, a, an image of what's going on in the heavens, the praise and the worship that's going on in heavens, in the heavens. And the words are as follows, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And even around God's throne, if you want to read in the book of Revelation, you'll see that there are creatures that have been created and they just say one thing over and over and over. Holy, 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 holy. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. His ways are holy. And as we praise and we celebrate and we worship, we acknowledge this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was, that's past. Who is, that's present. And who is to come, that's future. He's always been holy. He's holy today. And that's not going to change. And then we have a call to holiness... I'll give you a couple of passages of Scripture as we move forward here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Like the Holy One who called you, that's God, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, God's doing a work in each one of us so that we can bring that scripture to pass. So that that verse of scripture isn't some thing that we can never attain to. But because of the blood of Jesus, because of the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that's a passage of scripture that we are able and equipped to live out. And let it blow your mind for a moment. I know we have a lot of ground to cover here, but that's worth reading again to realize the power behind those words. Like, can you say like? Yeah, like the Holy One, just like God is what it's saying. Hey, just like God, you yourselves be holy. Just like God's holy, you yourselves be holy. That's the power of the blood of Jesus active in our lives, to have every stain washed away, all sin and all corruption washed away. Just like God is holy, you be holy in all of your behavior. So that as we're seeking God for wisdom in how to respond, how to behave, we can be guaranteed that he's never going to contradict his instruction and call for us to be holy. His counsel, his direction is going to start with holiness. So I want to identify what is it that we need in our lives to pursue this purity, to pursue this holiness. As we're wanting to live out our lives in holiness, responding to that passage of Scripture that would call us to be just like God in our purity and our behavior. I want to offer a couple of passages of Scripture in this pursuit of purity. If you want to take these down for your notes, that would be great. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. In the pursuit of purity, I think we ought to examine this passage of Scripture. And apply the contents of it to our lives. First John chapter 1, verse 9. It starts off conditional with the word if. If. Meaning it's going to state something, but there's a condition tied to it. Right? I mean, here's a good example that you can get behind. If the pastor preaches quickly, we'll be able to go eat lunch. Right? If he takes his time, it'll be dinner. Right? So take your pick. Which one you want? You want lunch? You want dinner? Let's go for lunch, shall we? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, there's the condition, if we confess our sins, now here is the, the promised result, if that condition is fulfilled, God is faithful and righteous, some of your translations may say just, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Let that passage blow your mind for a second. I mean, let me just tell you a couple of things that stand out that I think are worth being noted. First of all, the, the, the fact that it's conditional, right? The fact that it's conditional, if you confess your sins, it doesn't start off by saying, because Jesus died on the cross, God has done this. But because Jesus has died on the cross, we now have this as an option, If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. Now, that's something I want to stop and examine too. There's two things there. Forgiveness of sins and then the purity from that unrighteousness. Well, there's a number of things that I know I've been forgiven of. I've done some just dog nasty stuff and I know because of the blood of Jesus, I've been forgiven of those things. But now to this day, if I find that I'm not purified from those things, if those things tempt me, if those things are in my mind, if those things are still drawing on me, if I'm not washed from that and it still has a grip and a hold on me, I understand, I know I've been forgiven. If I were to kick right now, I know my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I know I'm going to be welcomed into the presence of God, but I want to be pure from that. I don't want that touching my thoughts. Time to confess. We don't really celebrate confession that much in in the non-denominational or or charismatic or spirit-filled community. It it seems like it's too Catholic for us. But I'm afraid we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater in order to say, well, we're Protestant, so we don't do that. We have cut off the purifying uh, sacrament that God's given us, confession, to confess our sins. That's one of the things I've told Marcus, I'm really proud of what you've done with the men's group. This is really like real church because a guy can show up here and you can have a plan and the guy can say, man, I really blew it. I did this this week. And it can change the whole uh, uh, flow of the meeting there because we're ministering and hearing that confession and response. And it's awesome. You know I mean? You come to a church service and I've got a message prepared and if one of you were to stand up and say, hey, I need to tell you the nasty thing I did this week, that would probably shock some folks, wouldn't it? But really and truly, I mean, that's God's design. We're meant to be able to confess, and it has a purifying effect. And I'm afraid that we've all become so content with being forgiven that we've decided to be okay with being impure. Well, I'm forgiven, so I'll just kind of limp along here till we hear that trumpet sound. It's not God's call for our lives. So purity, it goes hand in hand with something. In fact, it's step one of repentance. I mean, repentance is really at the heart of Jesus' message. I'll, I'll give you a couple of passages of Scripture. I mean, repentance is the priority of Jesus' message. If you want to take it for your notes, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it reads like this. From the very time Jesus began to preach, he would say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, I read that, and I, I take it literally. I picture him standing up to deliver a message, and And the whole point, the whole purpose behind any message, whether he was talking about fishing nets or seeds or treasures in fields, it didn't matter what the message was, the point was it needs to bring repentance because God's kingdom is here. Repentance starts with that confession, but repentance and confession are not necessarily one and the same. Confession opens up the door for repentance, but repentance has a second part to it, and I'll see well, I'll show you what that is here in the scripture in a moment, but I want to talk to you about the importance of repentance. I mean, as, as a people, it's very important to us to understand that the point of Jesus' teaching and preaching was to bring about repentance. And, and really and truly, I mean, Let's just say that we had some who were present here who needed uh, deliverance. They needed devils cast out. And we had some who were present here who were sick and they needed to be healed. We had some who were present here who were dead. And, of course, we need to see them raised up. And we all came to church and you saw all of that stuff happen. You saw devils cast out. You saw the sick Uh, restored and you saw the dead ray. I mean, I think we would all go and put a Champions Church sticker on our car and say, hey, we got a pretty good thing going over there at Champions. I like my church, man. It's a good Sunday. This is nice, right? I mean, I, I probably would be the first one to say that. But the truth is, that's not our goal. It's not our goal. I want to give you a passage of scripture here just to let you soak on. I mean, you think about this in your own time. Jesus delivered the most powerful message. He never preached a dud. The guy is speaking words of truth. He's hearing what the Father is saying and revealing it. He is the Word of God. And as he speaks, he speaks with authority. Devils are cast out. Sickness is removed. I mean, you see the results of holiness in every aspect of his ministry. And I want you to see this passage of Scripture out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. When we read this, it's going to be a little obscure and it's going to be a little out of context. And you're going to be required to read between the lines a little bit. But I want us to come to the point where we see how important repentance is. Jesus is talking and he's talking about cities. Cities where tons of miracles were done. Where by our accounts and our standards, they would have had some rockin' church services. And here's how it reads so that I don't add too much or paraphrase too much. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. It says, Then Jesus began to denounce, that's not a good thing, the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. I mean, most evangelists or ministers that I know would be talking up those meetings. Man, we were in Toronto, and you should have seen all the miracles that were done. And Jesus would probably be standing there and saying, Well, how many people repented? Ah, we didn't really count. Because that's the point with Jesus. It's the point of his message. It's the point of everything that he's doing. And the reason for that is because, one, it starts with purity. Repentance has a purpose, and that purpose is to purify our lives, to remove sin and corruption from our lives. I want to look at two passages of Scripture to define repentance, and we'll be moving forward from this. I'll give you a couple of passages, starting at Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 26, I want to look at verse 20. It says something that I want us to make a note of. It says, repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. If we could take that passage there and let that define what repentance is to us, I think we would have a very solid understanding. Repent and turn to God. Well, repent starts with acknowledging, like we read about confessing. It starts with that. You have to acknowledge that something's wrong. I can't repent if I don't acknowledge that I've done anything wrong. I remember one time because I know what I'd been set free from. I'd been set free from a horrible addiction to alcohol that was ruining my life and ruining every aspect of my living. It made me a horrible liar. It was destroying family. It was, it was terrible. It made me a thief. It made me corrupt in every way you can imagine. It was absolutely Horrible. Had me in bondage. And I was born again and set free from that and things are just amazing and everything's great. And I see a man and the man is suffering the thing that I'm familiar with. I, I know that he's living the same life that I used to live. And I remember this conviction to go and witness to him. Go and witness to this guy. And so I did. I pulled him aside and I said, listen, I can see it. I can smell it. I mean, you can tell you're going through this and this and this. I've been there. I've done that. Let me tell you, Jesus set me free from that. And he's present here and now to set you free from that. And the guy said, oh, I want freedom. I want to be free. And I said, hallelujah, let's repent right now. Acknowledge to God these evil things that you've done and and trust and believe in Him to wash those things away by the power of Jesus Christ and to empower your life with the, the power of the Holy Spirit to see you delivered from this corruption. And he looked at me and he said, I haven't done anything wrong. And so I gave him the whole speech again. And he looked at me and said, I haven't done anything wrong. I realized that that's the beginning of of repentance. You first have to acknowledge you've done something wrong. It's impossible to repent without first confessing, hey, I've blown it. That confession is important. It's the first part. So based on Acts 26, 20, you see repent. I mean, acknowledge you've done something wrong. And then you see the word and, and turn. Repent and turn. Well, many of you have noticed because I love you so much, I make so much, I want to see you because I just think you're the best. And then I'll think, well, there's pretty good over here too, so I want to see them too because I love them. And so I'll walk over here, but I'll be going in a direction and then I'll turn. In fact, you'll see in the scripture the word return, repent and return. So as we're celebrating repentance in a biblical form, we need to see first we've got to acknowledge there's something wrong. There needs to be a confession. Then there needs to be a turning. You don't continue in the same garbage that you were doing. So repent and then turn to God. Performing deeds appropriate with repentance. I read that passage of Scripture and I see that repentance has a purpose and that purpose is purity. Purity. God introducing repentance, Jesus preaching repentance, repentance being introduced into our lives through the gospel is meant to bring about purity. It's meant to, one, cause us to acknowledge the foul things that we're doing, two, cause us to turn away from those things, and then three, begin performing the acts that go along with repentance. I want to give you a passage of Scripture, and it's, it's actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I'll, you'll see why in just a moment. Acts chapter 3 verse 19, it talks about repentance. But it offers a wonderful promise connected to repentance. A promise that in almost every situation or every circumstance that someone is bringing a trial or a tribulation or a frustration or a disappointment or a hurt or a rejection or resentment or any unclean thing into my office for counsel, I can tell you they need what comes at the end of this passage of Scripture. They need this promise. Acts chapter 3, excuse me, verse 19. It says, repent and return. I want you to keep in mind, you have to separate in order to return. You can't carry it with you. Repent and return. So that, will you say so that? See, so that's now revealing something. It's revealing that we're dealing with cause and effect. Cause and effect. I know it's the same example, but you can use it in the same way. The preacher needs to preach short so that we can go eat lunch. Cause and effect. Cause as he preaches short, effect, we go eat lunch. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Man, sign me up for that. Sign me up for that. So I like to read stuff forward, and I like to read it backwards. And I don't know what it means about me. Maybe I'm a little goofy. Maybe I'm a little off. I don't know. But oftentimes, it makes more sense to me when I read it backwards. So let's look at this backwards. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, have your sins wiped away by returning and repenting, or repenting and returning. I desire times of refreshing. That's the result of having my sins wiped away. Having my sins wiped away is the result of me acknowledging my ways are wrong and turning away from those ways and returning to God, purity. Uh, There's a reason why all of these things are taking place, and I I want to move uh, through some of these things rather quickly. I'm going to read it, and it may shock the ears, but just allow me to read through them very quickly. We won't dwell on them long. God is really less concerned with what you do, but more concerned with why you do it. Less concerned with what you do, more concerned with why you do it. I don't think that I've ever committed a sin in my life that has shocked God, that he's ever just been like, my God, I have seen some nasties. First of all, God doesn't say my God, right? <laughs> all right. So let's, just, let's try to keep this a little realistic, right? He just says like, me? Oh, me? I don't think he's ever looked at my life and said, you got to be kidding me. I've seen some dirty stuff in my day, but that dirt bag right there takes the cake. I don't even know how to respond to that. He's never been shocked by the what. He's always interested in the why, what is it that draws us to those things? What void is there in our heart? What, what, what insecurity, what pride, what thing is it that's driving us to these actions that are corrupt? God's not concerned with the what, but the why. Let me give you a few passages of scripture for your notes. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. God sees not as a man sees. Now, first of all, you have to understand that's not because he's handicapped. I'm serious about that. I got one chuckle out of that, but it really wasn't a joke. It's not because he's handicapped. It's not because he can't see like men sees. God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's the reason why he's bringing purity into our lives. With all of his counsel, all of his direction, all of the wisdom that we are asking for is going to start with purity because he's at work in our heart. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23 I am here, I am him, this is Jesus talking, excuse me. I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one according to your deeds. Psalm 7, verse 9. The righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God's after our hearts, He's after our hearts. And purity has a power behind it. As we're pursuing God's wisdom in His direction, we know it's going to start with purity because purity has a tremendous power. In fact, it is power. Have you ever just thought it interesting that our celebration of the power of God, I mean, that Jesus would tell the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they're clothed with power from on high after He told them to go, 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 Go into all of the world. Go and preach. Go and baptize. Go heal the sick. Go cast out devils. Go, go, go. And then he would tell them to wait. Before you go, be clothed with power. And that that power would come from the Holy Spirit. Holiness is power. Holiness and power are one and the same, hand in hand, the power that, that God functions and operates in and that He has released into our life by the Spirit of God is holiness, purity. And you can see the power of purity throughout the Scripture, but there's one place where I see it, and I think it's just worth talking about as we close. You can take it down for your notes. I mean, it's, it's a really a a piece of history that we can share almost like a narrative. I mean, it reads like a story, but you need to understand it's history. It happened. It's documented. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. The book of Daniel chapter 3. There's a king, and he makes this great monument unto himself. And he's so proud of this monument that he requires everyone to bow down and worship it. It's a golden monument that's some 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. I mean, probably the closest thing I can think of that we could all wrap our minds around. Have you ever seen one of the blades off one of those windmills being hauled on a trailer? I'll bet that's about 90 by 9. So just take one of those, make it solid gold, stand it up, and you pretty much got it. And every time the music plays, everyone is supposed to drop to their knees. Now, when I was younger, I would have dropped to my knees as a you know, little theatrical bit. I'm, I'm getting a little older now. So if I drop to my knees, there's a chance I'm not getting up. I really like, measured that out and weighed it out in my mind and decided not to do it. That's really strange. But everyone's supposed to worship. He makes this rule. He gathers everyone. He says, hey, listen, when you hear the music playing, you, sh- you shall drop and you shall worship. And then there's a few guys who know that this is impure. They know that this isn't right. God's called these men to lead. He's called these men to be leaders of their people. He's called these men to represent his kingdom. These men have a call, an appointment on their life. But their life now is in peril because everyone who won't bow down is going to die. The king makes it a rule, if you won't bow and worship my golden statue, you're going to get tossed in the furnace. These guys refuse to, and to cut the story short, they're drugged before the king, they're accused, and as the king stands there and looks at them, he speaks to them and says, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to strike up the band. When they start playing, you drop to your knees and you begin to worship, and your lives will be spared. If not, we're heating up the oven. And they tell the king, oh king, we can't do this. You make a statement, and the king had said that they'd never be delivered out of his hand. And he said, the the guys say, you make a statement that our God can't deliver us, but we know that he can. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to do this thing. It's impure. It would be a corruption. It would introduce into my life something that would not stand as holy. I won't do it. Even with my life on the line, I won't do it. So the oven's heated up and if you read the story you ought to read it sometime. It's powerful. It's heated up so hot. You remember the word of the Lord is pure like silver tried in the furnace of the earth seven times. This king stands and he commands that the oven be heated seven times hotter than it normally is. And the men are tied up who refuse to allow this impure thing to enter into their lives. And they're drugged toward the fire. And the fire is so hot that the men are dragging them, burning themselves. And the Bible says the men that are dragging them into the fire die because of the heat. And they're thrown in all because they refuse to do what is impure. And the moment they're thrown into the fire, the king gazes into the flames and it says that he stands to his feet in shock. And he says to those who are around him, his wisest counsel, did we not throw three men in there? I think it's funny to me that here's all of these wise men, and they're like, one, two, three. Yeah, it was three. He said, look, there's a fourth one in there. I see four men in there. And one of them looks like the Son of God. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's wild. And then he calls to them, he he calls them by name, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out, come out, please. And these men who refused to do what was impure come walking out of the fire. They went in tied up in bondage and they come out free. The Bible says not a hair on their head was singed. Their garments weren't burned. And they step out before the king. And he begins to decree something. He says there's no God like your God. And I'm now making a decree that anyone who speaks against your God will be torn limb from limb. This king had some issues, right? (laughs) Maybe he was bullied as a kid or something. I don't know. But here's the thing. Just three people. We got more than three people in this room. But just three people who only would do what was pure, who were committed even to their own death, to only do what was pure, changed an entire empire. That's the power of purity. And when that king looked into that oven and he saw the fourth one, the one like the son of man, or the son of God, excuse me, the man like a son of God, he saw something happening that's not exclusive to this story. Something happening that's not just because God decided to to do something one time, once upon a time but because God was fulfilling His promise and His commitment, the same promise and the same commitment that you and I have today. I want to give you a passage of Scripture that we're going to close with. I mentioned before we're going to see how to see God, just like those men who stood in that fire. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. No matter what they're walking through, no matter what they're dealing with, no matter what threats they're hearing, no matter what violence they're suffering, no matter what slander they're enduring, no matter what their checkbook says, no matter what they're going through, no matter what, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we seek God for counsel, as we seek God for wisdom, as we hear his response and begin to check off the boxes that describe the direction and the counsel that comes from him, box number one will always be purity. It will always be holiness because he's bringing holiness into our lives. I want to ask you to stand with me. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.org.